This episode is being brought to you guys by our incredible sponsors, Tenant Inc., Live Oak Bank, and Janus International. Starting it off with Tenant Inc., their products are designed by owners for owners. And Tenant Inc. is funded and managed by self-storage owners with vast industry experience spanning decades. These guys super know their stuff, incredible people. They understood what the industry lacked and knew what needed to be provided. So technology in the industry sets basic operators apart from professional operators and they knew exactly what the industry needed and their technology puts the owners back into the driver's seat on to our next sponsor we've got live oak bank who is on a mission to be america's small business bank incredible group of people there who know and understand self-storage um, we've talked to so many people that use their services in the self-storage industry and have had nothing but incredible experiences with live oak if you guys are interested in sba loans starting in storage any of that phenomenal resource for you to look at Last but not least, Janus International. They've got everything from doors and hallways to installation, automation, and facility restoration. Their R3 program helps you revitalize facilities, bring them back to life. Um, they are a leading global provider of self-storage and commercial industry doors, relocatable storage units, facility automation solutions, and door replacement and self-storage restoration services. Again, these guys have been in the industry for so long. They know their stuff. They do incredible work. All the links to these incredible, amazing sponsors are down below in the show notes. Check them out. Get at them. With that said, enjoy the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome everybody to Self Storage Income. And today we have a monster of a podcast. This is going to be awesome. It's 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 not his first time. So we've had Corey on before. And man, you know, now think about it, Corey. Have we had you on twice already? I think we may have. I, I don't even know what day it is right now. So you could be right. Exactly. That's exactly where I'm at right now. I've been traveling yeah. for like two weeks and I'm like, I, I mean, we've talked a million times before, but I think we've had you uh, on a couple times. Dude, you're always a wealth of knowledge. Your background's incredible um, and your perspective on the industry is so unique. And so um, I'm so excited to talk to you about what's happening, what you're seeing, what you're, what you got going on, because a lot's changed since the last time you were on here. And um, man, things are, are, are very generous. Quick. That's right. All right. So uh, give people though, because for anyone that's first listening here, give people about your background, walk them through how you got involved in self-storage and what you've done in this industry so far. And what are you doing now? Uh, how we got involved in self-storage can be summed up as we, so my background uh, was on the buy side, um, JP Morgan, a hedge fund. We got into self-storage like six and a half years ago uh, under the premise that we were recommending that hedge funds short the REIT stocks, REIT self-storage stocks, because um the business that we had started six years, six and a half years ago was basically the premise of it was let's take our buy side experience of deep fundamental analysis and combine it with kind of real time data sets to help prove whatever the thesis is that we were looking to achieve. And, you know, 2009, 2013, 2014, there was no new development, but the fundamentals and self storage, you know, self storage is in secular growth. Uh, so if demand goes up every year and supply stays the same pricing and fundamentals get better every year and the stocks had, you know, been up and to the right nonstop and we had caught wind that there was a lot of development activity, um, and, uh, realized that that's kind of the perfect 
premise of a short is that everyone thinks stocks are going to keep going up and we see this kind of wave of development that's about ready to impact the market. So we got into storage by recommending, you know, that REITs short the stocks, which obviously hurt our relationships with the REITs themselves, but luckily we are recovered at this point. Um, so we basically rolled all of that, uh, all of that, uh, you know, income, cause that was a successful thesis. Uh, and, and through that process of doing research, we realized, you know, we knew like there was 3 million square feet coming in Denver, but going through the process of figuring out, we never knew what the install base was in Denver because no one had actually ever figured out facility by facility, every single facility, the size, the number of floors, the, the, the efficiency ratios, et cetera, et cetera. So we rolled everything into, okay, instead of shorting storage, we're going to build data sets for self-storage. And we built the first and really the only um, nationwide uh, data set that shows you exactly where a facility is, how big it is. Uh, we ended up building a, a pricing uh, data set that captures every single price that's put on the internet every single night, development activity, and all that was rolled into, you know, what you know is Radius Plus. So it's a very long-winded way of showing you that I got into self-storage through a unusual path, which is that I recommended people short the stocks. Now I'm, you know, very much a a uh, member of the community where that is not my that is not my recommendation <laughs> that's right you're on the other side of the table now yeah 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 i'm developing so i've, I've gone from pointing out the problem to being the problem <laughs> well that's that's a good that's a good position to take though so uh you can identify a lot more clearly risks than a lot of developers can because <sighs> developers just develop when somebody gives them money so yeah. it's, uh, you know, I think that's probably the better way to take development. That's uh, more our approach. We're more limited on, on the development side of the approach we take. We're very um, uh, surgical about it, you know, which I know you are too. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you talk about what you like about development right now and what you don't? So what do you like about it? What do you think the opportunities are? <clears throat> what I like about development is that, you know, what we saw during COVID was just this, before the inflation hit, was that you saw pricing and self-storage go up, which was a function of a surge in demand, step function surge in demand, which has not receded. And so if you look at the fundamentals of storage right now, you know, this is, this is they're never going to get better than they are today. And, you know, I'll, I'll say uh, in the history of storage, I'll go out on a limb and say, this is as good as fundamentals will ever get in the industry. Um, because to go from a seventh inning of an oversupply cycle nine months later to essentially being in the beginning of the next development cycle is a, is a whip that we just have never seen. Yeah. Uh, so the spreads in self-storage are so great. You know, obviously, what I don't like, construction pricing is brutal, uh, which is a function of, you know, labor, materials, um, which is, you know, a story that everyone probably has generally heard one way or another. Um, you know, that's 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 difficult. But see, the the municipalities themselves are so slow. Um, you know, they're out Mondays and Fridays. They can't bring work home, and by Thursday afternoon, they're they're not working anymore. So your their capacity for throughput has gone down tremendously. So I'd say that's probably the biggest. Uh, um, impediment to progress that we've seen across the board um but you know interest rates going up but that you know it impacts storage development rather but the spreads are still they're very different than they are uh on the acquisition side so from that standpoint they can absorb a little bit more of that uh but obviously interest rates you know not great but on the you could say that on both sides because that means we're not going to get this sort of crazy development cycle that if we had had, you know, zero interest rates, even with high development costs, you would have seen development accelerating even more rapidly than I think we're going to see over the next 12 months with interest rates being where they're going to be. So I, I, I agree. I think interest rates are good for development, um, not in the short term, but in the long term, I think they are right. Rising interest rates um, is going to rethink projects that shouldn't come to the market 
if, I hope so. If, if you have, if you're rethinking a project because the interest rates went up 200 basis points, you shouldn't have been developing that project. And no. I know a lot of people that what we're hearing is like, oh, I got to rethink this. And so I think what what will happen is it will just like you're saying, it'll, it'll get rid of all of that overdone, right? It, it, it'll it'll damper a little and slow it down, um, which I think on the development side, yeah, I, I think that helps out and that sets us up for a longer, healthier market cycle than just really low interest rates and mass building. Yeah, it's like the lockdowns in the beginning, all we're looking to do is we know everyone's gonna get it, but you're just looking to slow the spread. So distribute the supply over a longer period of time versus it all hitting the market at once. Exactly. So the only time I use a COVID analogy in a positive way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, what, what are you seeing? Uh, I mean, interest rates you mentioned on the development side. What are you hearing and what are you seeing? You, you mentioned it, it you, you think it affects acquisitions a little differently. Talk to me about that. Why do you think interest rates affects acquisitions differently? And what does that mean? What, what are you hearing? The way that, that I uh, characterize that in my head is that the spread, you know, for development, you're creating so much value from taking a piece of land, generally speaking, into a functioning cash flowing asset. So there's a lot of value creation there. Uh, with acquisitions, you're still creating value but the margin of error is a little bit tighter. So higher interest rates from that standpoint, you know, can stress a deal a little bit more uh, than, you know, going from a 30 IRR to a 25 IRR, whereas on acquisition land, like things are already so tight where it feels like uh, unless the seller's expectations move according to the, according, you know, with the interest rates, it'll be tougher to get deals done until that actually occurs because you've got that impediment of sellers that are still thinking that, you know, maybe I'm going to sell at a four cap, so to speak. Yeah. So a higher debt load and then your coverage is tight because you have to hit certain coverages. And so if it reduces your leverage, it means your total capital structure is a lot more expensive uh, versus on development. Generally, you can still have higher interest costs without affecting the leverage component. Yeah, that basis is really important. So on yeah. interest rate, the, uh, the size of the base obviously affects the underlying cash flow a lot more. It's exactly. one of the reasons why, um, you know, we, we, we're doing more and people ask, they're like, you guys just got more deals under contract, you're developing more. How could you be developing at this time in the cycle? And I'm like, I don't, I don't view development and acquisitions inherently more risky. I say, you're talking about at the end of one of the largest downward pressures of an asset class we've ever seen as far as cap rate compression goes to the highest point ever. And now we are in the unwinding part of the monetary policy and you're buying at these outrageous high prices on rents that have gone straight up for 10 years and you think that that's less risk or that's uh less risky than buying at a cost basis that is 50 percent less than that yeah i'm like that doesn't make sense to me if you know i got a guy that's buying a facility for us for 35 million that we can build for 13 million yeah so yeah. i i don't think the risk the idea that the existing revenue offsets risk of paying you know two three x the price i i don't fall into that category i don't think that's a straight line risk analysis <laughs> Dude, that's such yeah. a good point because there there always is that comparison you know development versus acquisition and i mean it's such a big question that we get a lot and making that comparison is just not doesn't make sense, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of risk in certain acquisitions especially some of the top 25 top 50 markets where you've got, you know, you're just competing on a different cost of capital basis. And even the assumptions going into the purchases being made by some of these large private equity uh, shops, you know, it, it's going to take a lot for these to play out in a successful manner, or you're going to really have to see some sort of great cap rate compression story at the end of the 
at the end of the session because um you know most of what brokers are putting out in the market especially top 25 markets like they're being broker they're being marketed as you know fully baked in for all the revenue growth that has occurred and anything that's going to occur um you know because you can't really make the argument from here that storage fundamentals are going to be you know revenue is not going to go up double no. digits no it, it, well it, it's going it to functionally can at a certain point you will price people out of the market 100% um and and kill demand so yeah, 100%. Well, not only that, just look at the, the, the drivers. So, you know, I, I put out this really long uh, thread on a lot of the data that we're looking at. The underlying driver of new customers for self-storage, 43 plus percent, right, is moving. Well, we're moving into a stagnation point in the housing market. So I don't know what effect that is on that overall number of moving, but it's going to be fairly substantial. So yeah. if you're looking at the amount of customers and the acquisitions of customers, the vast majority is from moving residents. Of that, that 43%, over half of it is from people that actually own residents, right? Yeah. So when you start looking at that and you say, all right, the demand in that rise in, uh, in, in overall rental rates that we've experienced in these low, low interest rate environments from all of this moving activity, slows down you're just not going to have that kind of pressure towards rates that is like a boiling point like we've seen because the number one driver for new tenants in the self-storage industry is impacted by interest rates so i think it's very i mean looking back at the last three four years you would be ludicrous to expect what's happened to continue on and i think a lot of people are buying these facilities at these rental rate prices at the highest they've ever been, um, baking in that we're gonna get a five to eight or 10% rental rate increase over the next five years that I go, I, I just don't know if you're gonna average a lot of that out. I mean, look at Texas, we're seeing two markets where we have three different unit sizes that we've already seen in the busy season are actually dropping. And so it's, you know, I think that- Are those main, major markets? Dallas, yeah, Dallas, um, one other, and, you know, this was the same though, even you remember in 2019, it's always Dallas. Maybe Dallas is just always overbuilt, but it was, it, COVID, Dallas was already overbuilt and started to come and it's like they're being affected again. But yeah, um, yeah I, I, I just think that you're exactly right. If I can build though, at the average rate today in a market and that spread works and there's core demand in that market because it is not oversupplied. And I don't need to buy and expect huge rental rate increases for the following years. Um, I I like that. That's that is. I think that's a good investment strategy um, at this point in the market cycle. Very very different than it was ten years ago, especially on the acquisition side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean you're you're the expert on the acquisitions. I mean we've been getting into it a little bit, but you know the, there seems to be a a period at which, at least for a, a good part of the market where we may need to adjust expectations around that, you know, interest rates are always transitory, right? Yep. I think they're going to eventually come back down, but you're not agnostic to whether that's 12 months from now or 48 months from now. Exactly. Uh, so I don't know, we'll be watching this inflation data, hopefully, you know, I don't, I don't know what the best outcome is. It's certainly not that it comes back down quickly because then uh first of all it's probably not going to happen and then interest rates come back down but uh the, the issue we run into is if inflation doesn't come down and we have to have some sort of like volkner type event yeah uh which it seems like the fed is more controlled politically i don't really understand it so i'm not speaking from any sort of real experience but i would think that that would be a more unlikely scenario that you would see the fed do something that aggressive but like they're at least saying if inflation doesn't come down rates got to keep going up but the good part is is that the government can't finance itself with a five percent ten-year treasury so we're bound by that to some extent but again that's that's only what i what i use to help me sleep at night i don't know that that actually makes its way into jerome's 
or Powell's uh, head. Yeah, uh, it, it it is interesting when you look at the um, interest rate environment, which in real estate, this is obviously outrageously important. It is important period for the overall economy. Most people just don't see it quite as upfront as we do in in real estate. Um, but the effect on valuations on customers on capital moving through the economy right and this uptick in interest rates that we've seen um, it, we're we're seeing it as it plays out that a lot of markets not first tier markets but we're already starting to kind of see more of this little restructure in value I mean we're seeing deals drop out I feel like it's cutting the the fat right it's it's cutting to the people that weren't super serious were very questionable about their underwriting they were doing it based upon predicated not on operations not on anything else but the cost of capital that they're mm -hmm. trying to deploy um, and we're seeing a lot of that go out and i'm wondering the longer that it stays in what kind of investment pressure does that take out do we get into a place and maybe next year where um acquisitions are uh, a, a lot more favorable because we have the problem that you know valuations building costs are so high have you yeah. thought about with the building costs so high as if we had a change in valuations we're not getting these four caps with all these crazy numbers and everything baked in and we have a cool down on the acquisition price per square foot um what do you think that does to the developing uh landscape because what are you what, what square footage first before I, you answer that what are you developing at what's your average square foot uh all in to put put it out of the ground well we're building in hawaii and we're building in uh, <laughs> take hawaii out don't don't right. count hawaii okay. yeah take hawaii out of the mix that's gonna skew everything yeah well, we underwrite pretty conservative we have 10 percent contingency um bake in some high numbers until we have a, a g max but I'd say high 80s, low 90s on hard costs. Mm -hmm. So you're probably near 100 all in. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't do that in many markets. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, there's plenty. I, I would say, I'd say differently. There are plenty of markets you can do it in, but there are certain markets where that's untenable. Um, well, I was down in. Geographically uh, speaking, that's mostly the United States. <laughs> So, like, I mean, literally, it's, you know, we took out 80% of our markets, it won't work to build in at this cost. It's, yeah. it's, it's so large, geographically speaking, population speaking, obviously, that's different, because the higher ones you're talking about a much higher rental rate per square foot. But for a huge portion of the United States, you get above that 100 bucks a square foot mark. Um, and it doesn't pencil, it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, we're developing in areas where rate, you know, the average market rate is, you know, 19, 20, $21. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's still a good amount of the market that doesn't have that. So it's certainly understandable. And building single story, from what I was understanding, I was down at the Texas SSA event last week and they were, uh, they were talking about how single story on a, per square foot basis was roughly similar to what they're building three story on a per square foot basis. So they're meaning that the, that the discount that you normally are able to achieve for single story doesn't really exist anymore. So even more to your point about how it would be difficult to add even small amounts of capacity, maybe in some markets, it, it's still very expensive to do. We, um, we did a lot of investing two years ago under that thesis. So we went to mark after the price of spike, we moved into markets that the price to acquire um, was uh, the rental rate was so low, the spread to put new product out of the market was no longer there, like you couldn't make it work. And so they even though they were high demand markets, so we went and bought a ton in those markets, because the rental rate increase runway was huge once you're getting up to 90 bucks a square foot to build and we're buying at 50 like you know and 60 and that um, that's a play I think's worked very well and will continue to work very well for us 
uh, over the last two years because demand's increasing, but they just can't put new product. You can't make it work. The rental rates don't hit it. So that break even point for me and my analysis, we looked at it, I'm like, you could, you almost need to have a double increase on that rental rate to make it so you can put new supply out of the ground to break even. That's a great rental runway. Yeah, so that's, that's called a barrier to entry. Yes, exactly. And I like those. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what what markets are you guys finding the most opportunity in right now? I mean, without you can speak, obviously, generally. Well, I mean, I think everybody knows where, where we're at. It's no secret. Uh, you know, honestly, we for development, we are in first tier markets. So development, we're in bigger markets. We're not doing any developments in any markets that we wouldn't get, you know, uh, under buck 50, so 15 plus bucks annually a square foot. Um, that's, that's it. Like you said, 19, I don't think we're in anything under 18 actually at all. Um, we wouldn't do it. Won't, won't touch it. Acquisitions. We moved out of most of the fast growing, um, markets. Um, Just because there's too many supply bombs coming in? Too many supply bombs and the spread on that growth rate and a housing slump. If all of a sudden you're not selling your house from California to move to Austin and that 3% growth rate turns into 1.5% growth rate um, and that new supply is predicated on that big margin at that cost, I, that makes us nervous. Uh, that growth rate is baked into numbers that may or may not play out in a housing slowdown. Um, so we, we, we're looking at that big time because if I'm in California and my cost basis to enter that market, because I bought however many years ago is 300,000, my house is worth 2 million, right? But my interest rate has now doubled or tripled and I'm locked in at interest rate. 80% plus of all the interest rates in the United States today are half of what today's rate is, 80%. There's only 1% of mortgages held by consumers in the United States today that is over 5.25%, only 1%. So they're all 85 years old and they don't even know what they're paying on their mortgage rate right now. Exactly, and they're not moving. So if if that, that, that migration pattern slows down, we get very nervous about it. So development, we're looking at core first year markets high, that is the growth is very underserved served served and is not predicated solely on the growth Um, acquisitions we haven't been in growth markets we're looking at stable long-term markets that we're getting in substantially under building costs that have large long run runways and high demand um, which is a big change from three years ago where were we at and now with rising interest rates i'm thinking we're actually going to be moving back into bigger markets on the acquisition side because we had two deals that fell out of contract and we got into a major market that we haven't played in in two years because the brokers and they came down on prices. So we bought one in Denver for 60 bucks a square foot on the freeway exit, five acres. That's crazy. Where, where in Denver? Um, Inglewood. Inglewood. Yeah. So they're, de- they're developing how many acres right next to us? Multifamily, everything else. One of the largest uh, multifamily developments. Huge, ginormous. Yeah. Um, and they're outside that development, there's no open land. So we're getting a few things like that. Uh, so we're like, oh, hey, we may be able to start to get into some of these markets that we've been nervous about. But I mean, that's what we hope happens. We hope that interest rates will open doors back into markets that we were concerned with or we were focusing on three years ago. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm How about you guys? Where are you guys focusing? Uh I mean, high growth markets for sure, uh, you know, along the East Coast, Sunbelt, um, West Coast, we haven't done too much yet, but that'll be something we continue to look at. You really have to, you know, we, we have reach of, in terms of being able to look at deals anywhere, but in terms of having execution, people that can execute on the ground, we don't have anybody in California right now, so not that interested in, in trying to make that work until we do. Um, but, uh, I mean, the way that I think about finding opportunities is not what market do I want to be in? It's starting from the standpoint of, you know, we look at a high number of deals and it's just all rate driven. I mean, everything 
from square foot per capita or all the other metrics are all factors that function into uh, what your what your rate is. Your rate tells you a lot about the demographics. The rate tells you about square feet per capita. Uh, so we we just look at you know I just look at rate. Uh, you know obviously once you've taken a second tier look at or, or uh, you know another look at it after you've determined it's a good rate. Obviously if it's got 13 square feet per capita. And, you know, you see a lot of promotions uh, on stabilized existing facilities, then maybe this is a market where there is a high degree of churn. And, you know, the high square feet per capita is indicative of something that may be telling you that there's too much storage in this market. But, you know, our first property that's opening in Vegas has 11, 10 square feet per capita. And, you know, rates are $20. And if you think about it from the standpoint of, you know, the way that square feet per capita benefits you, if you add 100,000 square feet and you're only increasing supply by 4%, then the dynamic of a high square feet per capita is actually very beneficial to the idea that you're not increasing supply by a large amount overnight. Versus we, if you're we follow in, that exact same rule. We have, yeah. so we have a total, uh, the impact of square foot, not amount, the impact, meaning if we're going to impact that market over a certain point, we're very nervous about doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, add, you know, there are areas in New York City where I know that the square feet per capita is two, but they have a tough time leasing up some of these assets. Really? Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a troublesome metric, square feet per capita. It's not something that should be tossed out entirely, but it's but almost it's almost worthless. I could not agree more. Um, yeah. 100%. It, there used to be these rules of thumbs and everything like that. Holy cow, we found, I mean, it was, we started seeing that six years ago where we're like, the discrepancy between rates, occupants, and square footage is not what people are saying. It, yeah. It's not aligned like they're saying it is. It, it, it's just not. And that has everything to do with like lifestyle. It has to, I mean, there used to be, a huge mantra that was like confined living space, multifamily, downtown areas need more storage than other areas. And that turned out to not be true at all. In fact, the larger utilization of storage is from single family homeowners and it is from uh, areas like out west, they use astronomically more storage. <coughs> Very exactly. And there's a there's a dynamic of, you know, some hidden variables and such as <clears throat> in texas they don't build homes with with uh basements basements same with idaho we don't yeah. do that really. There's so, some, it's not a lot you know 11 square feet per capita in in houston makes sense and may make more sense that new york city or the east coast is a lot lower well also too we tie that into disposable income so texas idaho utah have much higher disposable income rates and we see much higher utilization, the higher the disposable income is of self-storage um, and also tied to activities. It's so interesting how, you know, and I don't think anybody's really pegged it because I've seen things that are completely counter to what we were expecting and what we thought. Um, and it, it has us always questioning and puzzling because there's a lot of factors that you, you may not know um, especially across the United States. Are you in uh, Florida at all? Uh, we are building in Florida. Yeah. We're building in Daytona. We're building in Miami. We're building in Sarasota. What, what do you like about those markets? Like, what do I like about I mean, I just think naturally it's where a lot of people are going to move. Uh, quality of life is pretty great down there. Uh, and rates. I mean, rates have just done so well um in those markets uh cost to build versus like the east coast seems to be a little bit lower but you know that seems to be washing out pretty flat now these days um now i think florida is a great market uh there's certain areas in florida that have a lot of new supply coming uh you know miami put a in the city bounds uh you know put a, a hold on self stores so there are certain parts that you know have had enough of it um, yeah. but there's a lot of people moving to Florida 
And, you know, just like with Texas, although Texas is a little different, a lot of people moving somewhere, it tends to be a good area to put self-storage. Although, you know, you don't want to ignore areas that just have continued to see price increases in self-storage and aren't as sexy. You know, New Jersey obviously has had some kind of a story like that. And so it's, it's, it's not necessarily from our, our, our perspective, like, you want to go to the high growth markets because look at what happened in like Austin, Texas during the last cycle. Austin got smashed. And even trying to get a deal done right now on the development side in Austin is all but impossible uh, with reasonable assumptions. And it's just because everyone's looking. The land basis is a really high. Construction costs are high. Property taxes are insane. insane. So and and the the risk profile associated with someone coming in behind you is enormous. Yeah generally speaking in these high growth markets because newer self-storage developers are just going to say let's go where the growth is go where the growth is and go where we can so you have texas you have growth and you have ease of development yeah which low, low barriers to entry it's just yeah. it, it makes it makes it easy all you need you know to essentially build a self-storage facility is some money yeah i mean dallas is the crazy if you do you know the dallas laws on like land they, they have none. It's crazy. You can build anything like anywhere. You could be in like a neighborhood and you could like tear down your house and build a bar. I've never seen anything like it at all. I don't understand it. Hmm. I don't like, I'm like, that's listen, what I've like, heard that's, that's, what I've heard about that's a little too much freedom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Texas loves its freedom, which I, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not going to bash that. Not at all. <laughs> but, yeah, I, you know, I think you're 100% right. That's the, the scary thing for us, especially at this time in the cycle, is you put something up and you just got two, three coming in right after. Um, most of the developers aren't analytical like you are. They're not looking at risks and numbers quite like you are. You're right. They're finding, oh, self-storage is easy. I like it. I here's cheap land or here's an opportunity. I was going to build apartments, but instead, because of cost, I'll just build a storage facility. Yeah, it's um, really scary. I've had, I mean, on the radio side, I've had so many conversations with somebody just asking, what do you think I should do here? And, um, you know, you could tell, well, you just should not be investing a lot of money in this without someone who's really going to help you and has a lot of experience because you can blow yourself up uh, very, very quickly very easily um, and i think that's that's a layover from old self-storage build it and they will come it worked when until everyone realized it was such a great business and now everyone's in it now everyone's in it so what are your you know we've talked about like obviously things that you like demand and you, you, that spread from rates to building we're all, all on board too we see that very clearly there's those opportunities what outside interest rates, what are your worries? What, what, what are you looking at that you say, this concerns me in markets or areas? What am I worried about? I mean, storage has always done well in downturns, but you know, the discrepancy between the haves and haves nots just continues to become so exacerbated with what's going on with the economy. So I don't know, generally speaking, just a really severe downturn and how that might impact people differently than, uh, than it would have in previous recessions. But I don't know that that's really that tangible. You know, I think there are a lot of people with cash on their balance sheets over the next six to nine months that are going to run out of it. So delinquencies pick up and do we actually see people moving out? I don't think that's going to occur, but these are a lot of unknowns about the financial health of our, our end customers definitely peaked, so to speak. So I would say that's probably one of my biggest worries. Um, you know, property taxes, I don't know. I mean. You, you model for big increases, I think, generally speaking. Um, I don't think people's behavior towards uh, goods is going to change anytime soon. I was at a, I was doing a site tour yesterday. And one of the ladies was telling me that uh, 
they just auctioned off a unit for a lady that had been there for long enough to have paid them $60,000 over the life cycle of that unit. And they liquidated it for $250. And there was only really a trailer in there that someone, that the guy that bought the unit ended up taking. So do I think that behavior of irrational hoarding of, of emotional goods is going to end? I don't really think so. So I got a question for you on that. I've been puzzling this at, at night because I'm that much of a nerd. Um, as so, you know, we looked at this and I was looking at our average customers, you know, like Pendleton and Pendleton is, how would you describe Pendleton, Connor? Um, the facility. Uh, I, I would be thrilled if we sold it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great way to describe it. Yeah, so. yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's kind of one of those uh, facilities we bought back in the day, you know, yeah. and I think uh, where we're at now in our, our investment life cycle it's it's one of those facilities that i mean we wouldn't buy it today no you know no yeah. so what's been the issue with pendleton so it's an older asset in a smaller market older market it's on a land lease it's you know gravel we don't want to put any capital expenditures into it because it's a land lease we it was one of our you know original ones like 15 years ago that we we bought we, we it had good cash flow we got owner financing. So it was a good deal. It's paid off and everything. But yeah, we want to own it now. And what I the reason why this conversation brings it up is that facility we've owned for so long, we had tenants that have been there for ages, right? Like it, I don't know, it's like they must have just passed it down to their children and their children kept paying it, right? Just like you're talking about. Um, as rates though have risen, when I when I looked at that when we were talking, if you go back just six years prior, you're talking about rental rates that were when we bought the thing, it was like 25 cents. Like it was nothing. It wow. was. And my thought process that I've been thinking when I look at Pendleton versus the ones now, I'm like, will we ever have that? Like when somebody is paying $20 uh, as opposed to $4, are they really going to hold on to that? And as that end customer, right, gets to that point, are they going to pay that much money when it's junk? And I, I don't have an answer. My thought process, though, is rental rates in the last past six years have gone up so high. We don't have a long term litmus test of customers that utilize in a lot of these markets rent uh uh, square footage, particularly large square footage, we can see it in smaller ones and denser urban areas. But for particularly larger type units, things at these rental rates, I just wonder if we're going to start to see a shrinking in the of the overall average time frame in which people stay. I have no idea. I just thought I've been thinking lately, mm-hmm. is that changing that customers because you're talking about that financial health or well being? Well, it's one thing when you're paying, you know, 20 bucks a month, but when you're paying 200, like, you know, during the recession, no, n- nobody left, but our average storage facility was literally like probably like 30, 40 bucks a month during uh, to rent a unit during the recession. Now, right. I mean, it's gotta be 150, 200 in 10 years. Yeah. The, the, one, the one thing that, that should set you, uh, help you sleep at night at least near term is that the average length of stay uh, across REIT properties has blown out so normally within if you look at the data over time and they've shown it to us from like 2013 uh percent of customers who stay longer than 24 months has always been between it, it slowly was on the increase from like 37 percent to like uh you know low 40s and with what happened after the pandemic their average length of stay over two years is up at 47 percent so you've seen people longer than two years extending their stays and longer than 12 months was between 55 and 60 percent you know going back from 2013 and that's at 60 over 66 percent now so like that time frame rate increases were astronomical yeah I mean, you can argue, okay, well, people are displaced and they can't get to their stuff, but, you know, we're uh, over two years past this dynamic now where they they can go back to their stuff if they need to at this point. I mean, 
we're not wearing masks on planes anymore. So the pandemic's yeah. over. Yeah. Uh, so we've seen this in the internals of storage, you know, it just continued to do so well. And uh, it's, it's the, the best and, but yet the one, one of the most frustrating things is trying to pinpoint demand and what's happening with demand. The, the good thing is it's so diversified that it does well in so many different cycles, but because of that diversification, it's tough to understand really what that net, you know, demand profile is going to be doing uh, over time. Uh, Cause all we've known is that it's just continued to go up. Yeah. You know, where's, where, where. Do you think it uh, does? Do you think we end up in five years at 15% of the population utilizing the cell storage instead of 10? Because you're right. If, if that's a point that I, I'm, I mean, I've gone back and forth. And I've heard people. I don't believe some people's bullish amount where they're like, it's just going to get, because we've never seen that. But if it did, so it, don't 15%, forget that. If it went to 13% instead of 10%, what that would mean for storage is hard to comprehend because at 10%, we're at max. Yeah. So I mean, if I, you I don't look know at the happens. younger generations of disease and, the, and generally as you get older, you use self-storage less if you've looked at that over time. But if you look at the proportion of like what Gen Z's are using it for, um, the problem is I don't have what uh, like baby boomers would be using during their 30s time frame. So I don't know, like, were they using it just as much? But then as they grow older, obviously, it was a much less mature asset class so answer is probably no so i do believe it goes up i have no idea what it goes up to uh all we can basically do is just look at the near-term indicators of whether you know demand is strong uh when when you open a new facility what does it lease up at what are rates going to be doing that's the million dollar question though is, is where where does that shake out um i wish i had the answer so short term, um, real quick to kind of encapsulate your feelings, what you're seeing in the market, you have interesting insight that normal people don't have. So long term, meaning over three years, so let's just say three to eight, and short term, one to three years, what is your feeling in the short term compared to the long term overall? Yeah, I mean, short term, <clears throat> it's tough for development to to pivot on a dime. So I do believe that over the next one to three years, we'll see a continued, you know, uh, period of just uh, of, of uh, high rates, limited supply. Uh, as you get towards the end of that third year, supply is going to naturally be kicking in. So to what degree is still tough to say, but I'd say from a three to five year period, you know, we'll be, a three to eight year period, we'll be going through the next, you know, oversupply cycle in certain markets. That could change though, because there were a lot of developers that were flushed out. There were a lot of things that were occurring the last cycle that aren't occurring this cycle. You know, we had Jernigan Capital, we had guys like Crow Holdings that were syndicating massive amounts of equity to any developer that would, that would, that would come to them with a project. Uh, Crow's largely out of the business. Uh, Jernigan's out of the business. So there are different dynamics now. Most of the capital seems to be on the acquisition side, uh, or more of it's on the acquisition side, I'd say from an institution standpoint. Um, so does that mean that we're not going to see as much development? I don't know. Um, but there's certainly a case to be made that perhaps we're not going to see the same surge in development like we saw in 16 through 18 so to speak but during that time frame penetration is going to continue to go up like i don't think that's changing over the next 10 years uh people are going to continue to use storage more uh i mean uh if you look at uh some of the data uh, at least half of the customers coming in and using a storage unit right now have never been customers before. So it's uh, a big that's, number. That's a big number. Um, you know, which means there's still people that are learning the product. Yep. Uh, figuring out how to use it, how to integrate it. Um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is how does the 
experience of a self-storage facility, you know, perhaps transition over time, it's a very low bar in terms of what the customer experience is like today. We're thinking a lot about what that could look like. I mean, you don't want to say we work because we all know how that ended, but you have seen situations where you've been able to take different asset classes and apply a different, you know, lifestyle type brand to them. And it changes the experience and it may change the use case. So there's a lot of things I think we'll see over the next 10 years in storage that, you know, we're thinking a lot about that, you know, could come into play, but um, yeah, I'm in storage for the long game. So. No, I, you know, I, I think you hit it, Corey. I think that's a good sentiment. That's a good way to look at it. Short term, the spreads are really important and that demand, right. is um, really important that you're not caught with a couple years where you're, you're in trouble because you didn't realize a project was coming out and your spread was too tight on cost to rental rates. Um, long-term, uh, identifying those long-term trends, um, in like markets that you're going in, what you're doing, storage is here, for, here for the long run. Um, I think it's maturing. And I think over the next, I, I, I think over the next five years, we're going to see a lot more ma- you know, it, it's going to mature at a time frame when the economy is in a really weird place. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I, I think you're right. That's going to be interesting. But I do, I agree with you on the development side. I think that rising interest rates is going to um, strain uh, uh, a, a lot of asset types and products in the market and customers. And I think we're going to see banks start to be a lot more picky about who they fund. And that's going to take a lot of developers out. Cost of capital rising is going to take a lot of investors away from maybe new developers and products. And I think we may have a healthier next few years of a development and not like a 16, 17 and 18, which was ludicrous. Um, And I I think that plays well for all developers. I agree. So, dude, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. I love talking to you. It's great. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Where can people go learn more about you, where you're at, what you're doing? Uh, if they need help on anything self-storage related, if they're looking at a development site or anything acquisition, they can always go to radiusplus.com and you're interested in investing in self-storage, you can go to DXD Capital, dxd.capital. Um, but yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. You guys are crushing it. It's great to see, you know, the life cycle of how you've continued to grow and build an awesome portfolio. You got a great brand and I'm happy for you. Hey, you too, man. And I look forward to the next five years because like you, we're going to be old dogs in this industry. So yes, it's good will. to keep up and we'll, we'll keep touching base along the way, man. All right, buddy. Thanks. We'll Thanks, see you. Corey. See you, man.